at the end of the first part of this talk, I quoted Henri Corbin when he wrote, not your individuation, but the angel's individuation. The individuation of the angel is your task. Not your individuation, but the individuation of the angel is your task. And we were presenting that um, uh, as a a framing, if you like, or a, an opening into a much more radical uh, possibility of a way of looking at imaginal figures, a way of relating and conceiving them, uh, a sort of reversal of perhaps what might be tempting to many uh, of the usual ways of seeing, relating, conceiving of imaginal figures. Uh, and their relationship with the self. And, of course, Henri Corbin was, as I uh, think I mentioned one time, writing about actually just just certain um, streams of um, the Islamic um, mystical tradition. People like Ibn Arabi and uh, Avicenna and Suhadi. Um, and so that phrase of Corbin really has its home or originates in, in from from those streams, certain streams, very much a minority within the, as far as I understood, within the Islamic mystical tradition, or the range of that. Uh, and so that is uh, from a more, uh, or has its context in, in those traditions. And we can actually fill out a little bit and elaborate a bit more about that and then see how it might parallel with some uh, more Dharmic traditions and Buddhist traditions. But so that perspective on the angel, on the daemon, on the imaginal figure, um, we can fill that out a little bit and put it into a larger context, actually from uh, looking briefly at the Hasidic tradition, or again, some of the streams, the Hasidic tradition, the Kabbalistic tradition in Jewish mysticism, we see something um, there that's filled out as a kind of philosophy and practice that gives more flesh around this phrase of, of uh, Korban's. So there they talk about, or it is taught, uh, um, the uh, encouragement and injunction um, of the practitioner uh, to practice a, a twofold movement in relation to the divine. So the first aspect of this twofold movement is a movement towards um, dissolving the being, dissolving the self, dissolving the consciousness actually in the Godhead, um, transcending the world of self and other, and the world of appearances in fact, transcending and dissolving it in the Godhead. Um, and that Godhead, that essence of God, if you like, in this tradition is also ayin. Ayin is a Hebrew word. It means nothing or nothingness. Ayin, A-Y-I-N. So there's this movement um, of dissolution of self being world in the essence of God, which is nothingness. Very much a transcendent uh, dissolution there of, 
of the world of appearances and everything that goes with that. Now, I'm going to make some parallels here with um, Dharma teachings, classical Buddhist teachings, and right there, as I'll, as I'll explain shortly, is a very um, classic um, teaching of the Buddha of, uh, 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 to, about cessation of consciousness in what he would call the unfabricated, etc. That, that, so that first of the twofold movement in the Hasidic teachings has, has really a clear parallel in Pali Canon Buddhism and the Buddha's teaching of the deathless and the unfabricated. I'll come back to that. So this first movement of transcending and dissolving in the um, in the mystical nothingness, the pregnant mystical nothingness of of the Godhead. But the second of the twofold movement is, is in a way a kind of opposite movement, a movement in in the opposite direction. So this what's regarded as a dissolution or transcending upwards into the Godhead of the being, and then secondly a. Uh, a drawing down of the divine influx from God in order to spiritualize the material world. I think those words are from either uh, Samford Drob or Rachel Elior, who wrote about these um, teachings in the Hasidic tradition. To draw down the divine influx in order to spiritualize the material world. In other words, there isn't just the dissolution in the transcendent mystical nothingness just the sort of disappearance of form um, into the absolute, but there's the drawing down from God into the world and into, um, as I explained, actually the perception of the world, of, um, of the divine influx to spiritualize the material world. To, that's using a certain way of putting it. But included in that second uh, aspect of the twofold movement is the idea and the fantasy of the um, of our, uh, if you like, completing God, so that our drawing down of the divine influx is part of what, if you like, completes God or actualizes God, or in, in to some in, in, in a manner of speaking, creates God. So this is a very um, sophisticated philosophy, if you like, uh, that's bold enough to. Um, admit that the human being creates God in a sense. So there's quite a lot I want to uh, pull apart here and elaborate on and fill out, but just to draw attention to um, one aspect, because what's possible then with such a, uh, a framework, such a conceptual framework, is the, is the view then of practice and imaginal practice and the whole journey of practice and of life uh, is that it's for God rather than for the self. So it's possible to um, approach and conceive of one's practice and imaginal practice and, and one's whole journey as being not for the self, the completion, the actualization of the self, the individuation of the self and all that, but for God. Again, quite a, a radical um, shift in, in view. In other words, we are drawing down this divine influx, if we use those words, in for God's sake, for the completion, actualization, creation of God. Okay. Now, I know for some of you, just the word God doesn't compute, or even one has an aversion to it, etc. Is it possible 
who actually entertain such a radical view hold it lightly and, as I say, still potently in this kind of middle way understanding. Um, can I hold such a view without believing in uh, the existence or the non-existence of God? So this whole area about the divine and God, the first thing most often people jump jump to is, does God exist or does God not exist? And they quibble and quarrel over such notions. But actually, is it possible uh, either to just put aside such questions and not be so interested in questions of the existence or non-existence and just enter into holding lightly this way of seeing? and way of relating, or actually to have more sophistication, more cunning, if you like, philosophically, to see beyond such simplistic notions of existing and not existing. So can I have a, 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 a potent and potentizing, uh, potentiating sense of God, view of God, if I feel like I'm playing with this, I'm playing with it, it's light, and I see it's, I'm not getting sucked into having to believe or not the existence of something. And I can, that can create a kind of platform where I can go even further and turn around the whole purpose of my practice, not for me, but for God. I don't have to believe in existence or non-existence, and nor do I have to have a clear concept of what the divine is. Interesting that these kind of views are entertainable without believing so rigidly in things like existence or non-existence, not a question of belief, or a question of having a clear concept of what divinity means or what God is. This is something I'm going to come back to later. But there's a possibility there of a radical shift in view. So let, let's fill this out a little bit more. This ayin that we mentioned, this nothingness or nothing uh, in the Kabbalistic and Hasidic traditions, um, has its parallels, as I mentioned briefly, um, very clearly in what the Buddha would, uh, talked about in, in the Pali Canon, the unfabricated asankata, or the um, the deathless, the unborn, something he usually put in negative terms beyond anything that um, can be, beyond any attributes and any qualities, something that was utterly transcendent, uh, without qualities, without attributes. So could give many examples from the Pali Canon where he speaks in that way. For example, and this is from Udana 8.1, there is that sphere where there is neither earth, nor water, nor fire, nor wind. In other words, no materiality. Neither sphere of infinite space, nor sphere of infinite consciousness, nor sphere of nothingness, nor sphere of neither perception or non-perception. It's beyond the, uh, the, the uh, kind of more mystical realms of perception. Neither this world nor the next world, neither sun nor moon. And there, I say, there is no coming and no going. No staying, no passing away, and no arising. It is without foundation, non-continuing, and objectless. So he talks about practicing and developing skill in practice, the Buddha in, in the Pali Canon, as I would read it. And eventually that skill in practice um, is developed and uh, culminates at a certain point where, where one is actually able to... Um, 
you like, enter into or open up to a cessation of perception, meaning a cessation of appearance, not just a cessation of labeling of, of appearances and things, but a cessation of perception of any kind of forming of anything, any subject, any object, any time, any space, no appearances whatsoever. Buddha talks about cessation of perception, the cessation of consciousness, the cessation of mind. And that doesn't mean just the cessation of thinking, it means the cessation of all subtle conceptualities of space, of time, of thing, of subject, of object, even in the most subtle way. Cessation of all appearances. As, as, as that description of the Udana um, and, and many other descriptions in the Pali Canon point to. So sometimes he talks about his cessation as in very negative terms. Not this, not that, this isn't there, that's not there, etc. Occasionally he puts it in the positive, um, this unfabricated, this transcendent, unfabricated, the parallel of what we're calling ayin. Ayin, as, as meaning nothing in Hebrew, is also a negation, a negative way of spinning it. This essence of the ultimate, if you like. And sometimes the Buddha puts it in the positive. For example, he talks about... Um, Consciousness without attribute. Uh, so it's, it's given, there is a sense that there is some kind of consciousness there. It is some kind of consciousness without attribute, without object, without end and luminous all around. Here water, earth, fire and air have no footing. Here long and short, subtle and gross, pleasant and unpleasant. And Nama Rupa, which means all the... Uh, Factors of mind and conceiving and perception are all destroyed. It's a transcending and a going beyond all those appearances of materiality and measurement and perception and appearance. With the cessation of the six sense consciousnesses of um, smelling, tasting, touching, seeing, hearing, and thinking, with the cessation of the six sense consciousness, here all is destroyed. All of these are destroyed. All these other perceptions are destroyed. And there's just this consciousness without attributes. So sometimes this unfabricated is given a positive um, description, if you like, as much as possible by the Buddha. Most often it's given this negative, uh, the, the sort of language of what in the Christian mystical tradition is called the via negativa. Uh, not this, not that. Beyond, beyond, beyond. The unborn, the deathless. Um, and occasionally the Buddha says, in fact, simply neither putting it in the negative or the positive, he just says, um, where all phenomena are removed, all ways of speaking are removed as well. So when all appearances fade, phenomena means uh, appearance, actually, from the Greek, where all phenomena are removed, all ways of speaking are removed as well. In other words, there's nothing that you can really say about this transcendent, unfabricated, this deathless, this unborn. It's utterly beyond uh, words and concepts in the usual sense. that tend more to f um, base themselves, of course, on subject, object, thing, uh, perception, space, time, etc., the whole fabric of conceptuality is based on that. And this is beyond all that. Not just beyond thinking, but beyond perception, beyond consciousness in the usual sense, beyond um, uh, all that. Beyond perception, beyond perception, beyond perception, beyond conception, beyond consciousness. 
in the usual sense. We can know this. We can know that transcendent, unfabricated, through practice. It's a matter of practicing in the right way. It's a matter of knowing how is it, as I mentioned before, how is it that we move deeper into this unfabricating? How, do, how can I practice in a certain way that I don't, the mind does not just keep fabricating appearances, self and the world, and the world of things, and the world of space and time? So through emptiness practices, there is a deeper and deeper unfabricating of the world of appearances. And one can develop that. It's just a matter of um, finding that thread, those threads, and following them, developing them in practice. And we can taste this unfabricated, we can open to it. A whole, whole different sense of existence comes out of that, of life and death, of being. It is available to us if we practice in a way that leads in that direction. But this transcendent, unfabricated, this deathless or unborn, as the Buddha might put it, or did put it, um, has parallels in uh, in all the mystical traditions. Point uh, the great mystical traditions point to that. So in Neoplatonism, they talk about the One, but in in very similar terms of being beyond attribute, beyond space, beyond time, transcendent, etc. Very very similar. To, so to quote uh, Plotinus, who's uh, really the father of Neoplatonism. Neoplatonism was. Probably one of the most influential um, philosophies and mystical philosophies that um, uh, grew out, if you like, of the, the classical era, the Greeks, etc., and, and pervaded um, Western thought in so many different ways, and so came in and shaped so much of Western um, mystical practice and religious thinking, and and uh, and. Uh, whole host of uh, other areas of, of Western thought and sensibility. And Plotinus said, even being cannot be there. Even being cannot be in this un, unfabricated, transcendent, this one, what they call the one or uh, in Neoplatonism. So it's even beyond being and non-being. And that also has echoes in the in the Pali Canon when Saraputra was uh, explaining to some another monk. It's beyond existing and non-existing. You can't say there's something there with this cessation of consciousness, this total unfabricating of perception. You can't say there's something there, you can't say there's something not there. So you can't say there's both something there and not there, you can't say there's neither something there nor not there. This is Sariputta explaining. Plotinus, even being cannot be this, pointing to something really beyond the most basic, subtle, non-verbal conceptuality that we have of just existence and being. And again, in, in Gnostic teaching, I'm not sure who exactly this came from, another stream uh, within the Western spiritual tradition. Um, not really, some people more modernly regard it as a separate stream. Gnosticism is more collection of different streams within that. But talking about this transcendent aspect of God, this unfabricated, nor is he, putting it as a he, nor is he something that exists that one could know, but he is something else that is better, whom one cannot know. He has non-being existence. 
He has non-being existence. You see these struggling with the language here. This is something, as I said, we can taste and we can know through practice, despite this one could, uh, not something that we could know, meaning in the com- it's not a conventional perception in space, in time, in the framing of m- most perception of subject and object. It's not even oneness, a sense of everything. One is something beyond that. The 14th century Jewish Kabbalist David ben Abraham Havalavan. Uh, again, this nothingness, this iron, talking about the same thing here, this nothingness, this iron is more existent than all the being in the world. It's more existent than all the being in the world. And again, that statement has its parallels very strongly in how I would read the, the, um, the Buddha's teaching of uh, the unfabricated and the deathless. Uh, if we learn to practice in this way where we're um, undoing grosser fabrication, for example, papancha, this kind of crazy mind, crazy-making ego proliferation, one learns how to untie that through mindfulness, through through the skill of practice, and one realizes, oh, that's a fabrication. That whole perception that I, that was being experience and entertained in that state of mind, Papancha, one sees, oh, that's fabrication. That's a very gross level of fabrication. One picks up, as I said, the threads through practice of, of, okay, can I unfabricate? Can there be even less fabrication? What else is fabricated in this world of appearances? It's obvious in hindsight that Papancha is a fabrication, that whole way I was seeing myself or another or a situation. Oh, very... um, uh, as a constructed fabricate and I learn how to undo that and I just go deeper and deeper following this thread learning how to unfabricate learning how the world of appearances of self, other and the world um, uh, are fabricated and how to unfabricate them or how they become unfabricated through basically through removing clinging of different kinds and developing skill in that and eventually it's possible I see this is fabricated and then I see oh that's fabricated as well I thought it was real and then even this more basic seemingly basic level I see that's unfabricated too sorry that's fabricated too and I understand and I can go all the way to this unfabricated not to live there because I can't live there it's impossible it's a non it's a realm of non-manifestation non-appearance but moving in that direction in practice and understanding then, oh, this appearance is fabricated, that appearance is fabricated. Eventually even space as a perception, as appearance is fabricated. Time, self, other, world, solidity, all this fabrication. So I can go all the way to the unfabricated and I understand, oh, in a way, all this other stuff is fabricated. And we can talk about what's less fabricated and what is unfabricated and less more real. So there's the parallel then with this um, saying of David, David bin Abraham Alavan. Nothingness, this I in this unfabricated, is more existent than all the being in the world. In a way, why? Because it's unfabricated, it's more real in a way. 
So there's parallels there, very clear parallels in the great mystical traditions of this first aspect of what I was presenting, the twofold movement, this trend in the uh, Hasidism, the, the transcending, the dissolution in, God, in the Godhead, the essence of the Godhead in the, in the mystical nothingness, the transcendent, unfabricated. And what about the second aspect, this drawing down of the divine influx, and this idea of, or fantasy, of completing and creating God. So this, actually, we may need to look to get this more fully fleshed out. We may need to look to uh, Vajrayana Buddhism, where the ultimate um, is not so much regarded as this purely transcendent, unfabricated, without appearances, without qualities, without attributes. It's actually the ultimate in, in Vajrayana Buddhism is is a kind of, well Buddha nature people use different vocabularies but the the ultimate in Vajrayana Buddhism in some schools of Vajrayana Buddhism is the Buddha nature and that is um, replete with qualities full of qualities of beautiful qualities not devoid of manifestation or appearance or expression so this. Vajrayana ultimate, the Buddha nature, is a primordial wisdom awareness, this Buddha nature. It is empty, but it's ultimate because it's regarded as this is the way a Buddha sees. This is the way, this is the wisdom awareness of a Buddha, but it's primordial, it's cosmic in a way. And it's something, if you like, our Buddha nature, we possess it inside, if you like, or it's... it's uh, part of the deep down fabric of our being that's covered over, but it's understood that it is empty too. And what is it? Well, again, it's impossible to completely get one's head around it and put it into words or fit it into a neat concept. But we can say that it is a kind of awareness. It's a kind of um, seeing and knowing, if you like, if we use those words, a kind of awareness that sees... Um, Everything as empty, but not just empty, also as divine. So seeing all things, including oneself and the selves of others and objects and the world and the cosmos, as divine, as deities. Uh, so it's, it's, it's an awareness, but it's also not separate from what is seen. So it's the awareness, the more subjective aspect that's included in this primordial wisdom awareness, but it's also the objects that are seen, the divinities that are seen and manifested. You understand? It's the seeing and the seen. The seeing of everything and everyone, uh, including oneself, as a empty divinity, and it's the object seen. So the awareness is not separate. It's inseparable from the, the divinities and the objects seen and manifested. Uh, tantric practice is then seen or regarded in this view as a kind of m mimicking, if you like, a skillful mimicry of, of this Buddha mind, this primordial wisdom awareness, where tantric practice is actually kind of um, entering into or pretending or supporting um, for, for a period of time uh, that view, seeing everything as empty divinity. Not, and the seeing and the object seen are empty and divine. So the awareness is divine and empty, and, and what is seen, 
the world and the beings are also seen as empty and divine. So uh, this is a quote from the second Dalai Lama and had uh, uh, these mystical verses, these mystical poems and and one of the stanzas reads, um, he's talking about tantric practice and this mimicry. He said, the experience of the yogi, the experience of the practitioner is then this, the world is seen as the mystical mandala and all living beings as tantric deities. Everything that one eats and drinks becomes transformed into blissful ambrosia. All of one's activities become spiritual, regardless of how they conventionally appear. And every sound that one makes becomes part of a great Vajrasam. So this is the practice, um, and it's given a certain, this is the tantric practice, it's given a certain framework in in that way of approaching it. Uh, but again, to really stress that the, uh, Tantra and that whole philosophy and Vajrayana Buddhism and Tantra as a practice is predicated, it rests on um, an understanding of emptiness. So this wisdom awareness is empty. Um, everything that one perceives, all material objects and space and time, are all understood to be empty. The deities that one perceives in the practice are also regarded as empty. Empty emanations, if you like, of this primordial wisdom awareness, which is also empty. So the whole thing rests on an understanding of emptiness, not a kind of concretized, um, reified view. Very, very important to understand that. Oftentimes people talk about Tantra, or they think they're practicing Tantra, and they don't. The, the, the view of emptiness is not really developed that well. So in practice, it's emptiness meditation. It's meditation on emptiness and developing skill with emptiness meditation deeper and deeper and wider and wider and more and more fully. And the understanding that comes out of emptiness meditations and those that, that developing the emptiness meditation skills that allows this whole tantric practice more fully, allows that view, that way of looking or the ways of looking that form tantric practice, that constitute tantric practice, allows them to be more fully explored and experienced as um, palpable uh, experiences and perceptions. So through the understanding of emptiness, through skill and emptiness practice and understanding that, the, the world of perception of self and other and things and all that becomes much more malleable. We understand it's empty. It's not, it's not independent of the way of looking. And so we can play with the way of looking and the world of self and other appearances becomes much more malleable and and it can be seen as divine. Self, other, world, thing, etc. as those beautiful verses from the second Dalai Lama say, can be seen as divine. So that the more skill and emptiness practice for a lot for most people the more skill and emptiness practices one has and the more understanding deeply and widely of the thorough emptiness of everything the more the perception becomes malleable and the more easy and natural actually a natural outflow of that understanding i would say and skill and emptiness practice to see the world and the world of things and self and other bodies and cosmos as divine now, that too has its parallels in other traditions, in the Western mystical traditions. So, for example, the um, 
Dov Bear, the Maggid of Meseridge, a, a, a great Jewish mystic of the 18th century, said, um, first, each thing must arrive at the level of Ayin, the level of this mystical nothingness, this unfabricated, this transcendent. First, each thing must arrive at the level of Ayin. Only then can it become something else. Can it be, uh, in other words, when I, when I, um, see its emptiness, its equivalence with nothingness, if you like, its non-separation from this unfabricated, we could put it like that, then it can become something else, because knowing its emptiness, the perception becomes malleable, and it can become divine in the perception. So his, one of his disciples, I don't know his name, um, one of the Maggid's disciples said, when one attains the label of gazing at Ayin, gazing at this mystical, unfabricated nothing, the essence of the Godhead. When one attains the level of gazing at iron, um, one's, um, let's use a Buddhist word actually, one's chitta is annihilated. The translation of it I have from the Hebrew, I don't know what the original Hebrew is, is one's intellect is annihilated. Um, let's use the word chitta. And again, what, what, what that means in that moment of seeing the unfabricated, seeing metaphorically the unfabricated, knowing it, dissolving in it, the mind is annihilated, he says. The intellect, the mind, the chitta is annihilated. But that doesn't mean just a quietening of thinking. It means, as I said before, the whole, um, the whole of conventional cognition. Any perception, any appearance, any um, typical consciousness, and the whole, uh, even beyond all the jhanas, all the eight jhanas, all that's annihilated. All the subtle conceptuality, non-verbal, non-thinking, all the conceptuality that goes on as part of what fabricates perception and appearance, all of that is quietened. In Buddhist practice, through the skill, through this, as I said, through the skill in unfabricating, it's a bit like um, that game Kaplunk uh, or I've forgotten the other names of it, where you have those sticks and or a house of cards. Instead of um, pulling out a house of pulling out one card and hoping that the the house of cards remains, you're actually pulling out this and that stick or card, and then at some point the whole thing collapses. The whole edifice of appearances collapses, uh, and one one there is a transcending of the whole world of appearances. So the Muggy's disciple, when one attains the level of gazing at iron, one's chitta is annihilated. One's whole cognition and perception and conceptuality even the subtle is annihilated afterwards when one returns to the chitta to the whole realm of perception of conception mind and, and the perception that comes out of subtle conceptuality afterwards when one returns to the chitta it is filled with divine emanation so again this mirrors the uh, what, what should be the platform and the support of tantric practice that there's this deep understanding of fabrication and emptiness and one if you like plunges into that uh, that emptying and then on emerging um, the mind is is flooded if you like with this um, knowing of the emptiness of all things <clears throat> there's a malleability and it's possible to uh, see everything as divine actually that will be the n n natural outflow of that So this, in, again, in Buddhist practice, this, this n n 
developing skill in unfabricating and understanding the implications that it has. It's not just about the experience of this unfabricated, it's about understanding what that implies about the fabrication of appearances or in, uh, in other Buddhist language, the dependent arising of appearances, understanding that they're empty. And that um, opens up a door, if you like, or a realm of the malleability of perception of appearance, the possibility of a range of appearances, we said, and the ability uh, for a sense of the divine to be part of perception, all kinds of ways. All kinds of ways. So in the, <clears throat> in the uh, more theistic framework of, of, say, the Abrahamic religions, God is regarded as infinite. And so because... God is infinite, his aspects are infinite, they're inexhaustible, so not just transcendent, actually the aspects, the manifestations, the expressions, the faces of God are infinite, inexhaustible. But all this, when we frame it this way, all this has to do with perception. Perception, perception. Everything hinges on perception. I was uh, said several times on the retreat, uh, one possibility is actually relating to the whole teaching of the Four Noble Truths and this teaching of clinging as a key to unlock, if you like, the secrets and the doors of perception and appearance and recognize emptiness and then see now what's possible. Now that I know that everything is empty, or that to the degree that I see that everything is empty, what does it free up in terms of perception? And, of course... Practically speaking, the advantage of putting all this, whether it's tantric practice or imaginal practice or whatever, or, or these uh, practices from the Jewish mystical tradition or, or the Islamic, whatever, Islamic tradition, whatever, the advantage of um, whether one uses the word emptiness or not, or seeing image as image or whatever it is, uh, whatever language one uses, one the advantage of that practically is that one can play with perception this way, play with this perception of divinity. And even the divinity coming through one, through one's personhood, not just that one's fabric is the same stuff as everyone else's fabric and every everything else's fabric in the great oneness of things. Not just that kind of divinity. I'll say more about this tomorrow, hopefully. But the ability to perceive that divinity, knowing it's all empty, knowing self and other and all things are empty. And this appearance too, this divinity too, is empty, it's understood. And that way there isn't, well, there's much less danger of a kind of what Jung would call inflation or the ego getting grandiose ideas, puffing itself up and all that. So to return to the um, uh, to, to, to enter in the Jewish mystical tradition as well, the Kabbalistic tradition, particularly uh, the Lurianic Kabbalah of Isaac Luria and what came out of that, and they talk about they have this beautiful concept uh, Tikkun Haolam, which translates to something like healing of the world, the healing of the world. And the movement, the again, the encouragement, the injunction um, as part of practice to heal the world. What does that mean? So dana and, and uh, loving kindness and all that, of course, part of that. And the, the he, what does it mean, the healing of the world, the healing of our planet? 
the care for the other species, the care for the fate of this world. But even wider than that, what does it mean to heal the world, heal the cosmos? So it's a beautiful, rich, deep, fertile concept that's there in the Lurianic Kabbalah and elsewhere in Jewish mysticism. But this movement of Tikkun HaOlam, of healing the world, is actually regarded in the Lurianic Kabbalah as actually part of God. It's an aspect of God. It's a human movement, but it's part of God. It's part of the Ein Sof, which means the, the, uh, the literally without end, the endless, the infinite. So the, the Tikkun HaOlam, the, the human healing of, of the world, is part of, of God, of the infinity of God. And as I mentioned, I think in another talk, part of this Tikkun Olam, part of the healing of the world, happens through, um, in the Jewish mystical tradition, particularly the, the, this Lurianic Kabbalah and others, partly it happens through the interpretation of, in that case, the, the holy texts of the Bible and, and the Zohar and other holy texts. In other words, the healing, the Tikkun Olam, which is part of God, happens through the interpretation of of what is holy, but also the interpretation of the world, the reading, if you like, of the text of the world, and if we use kind of postmodern language. And that human interpretation is part of this movement of God. Why? Because God and the soul and the human are not separate in the same way that the Buddha nature as that empty primordial wisdom awareness is not separate from us, it's so to speak in us, part of the fabric of our being. We are not separate from our Buddha nature. So that when we interpret, uh, or in the Jewish mystery, we interpret a sacred text that way, we interpret, so to speak, the world that way, that's actually God, it's part of the movement of God so to speak, seeing through your eyes, but more than seeing through your eyes, shaping perception, seeing in a certain way, not just seeing in general, though we could say that, but seeing in certain ways through one's eyes, seeing this or that, that way or this way, seeing imaginally. So for Corbin, um, the uh, con- he conceived of the faculty of the imagination, the, the imaginer is not just a human faculty, but actually in some ways continuous with, if you like, God's imagination, God's creativity. So images, in, in the sense that we've been using that word, images, uh, are regarded as influxes, as part of the divine influx. They're not just me and my imagination. There's something divine, as I said, they have their roots in some way in the divine, or they mirror or echo divinity. And so this word interpretation, we really stretch it to mean, uh, to stretch it to become perception. As I said, everything hinges on perception. So this drawing down of the divine happens, uh, that I mentioned as a second aspect of this Hasidic teaching of the twofold movement. One is the transcendence and the other is the drawing down of the divine in order to spiritualize the material world. That's actually, or I would, I would read that as actually, um, it happens certainly through acts and through what we do in the world and the generosity and the kindness and what we manifest. But it also happens through interpretation, in other words, through perception. How do I perceive this world? 
And that my perceiving of it in this way or that way, my perceiving of this holy, my seeing this this person as a theophany, as a face of God or an, an angel, my seeing of the world and the sacredness of it and its non-separateness from God and its particular manifestation as a particular aspect of God. So not losing the particular there. That that these ways of perceiving are part of the divine drawing down, drawing down of the divine. And that includes the, the imagination, as Corbin was saying, the fantasies and the images when they're alive for us in this soulful way, is also this, we could see it as, a drawing down of the divine as part of it through the imagination. So this, what I've been going on, Stressing again and again, this opening up of the range of perception is part of this drawing down of the divine. Because in this other language, God is infinite, and God's, the aspects of God are infinite and inexhaustible. The range of perception can open up infinitely, our perception. And that's part of the, if you like, the expanding of God. So this tikkun haolam, healing of the world, is also, in a way, the completion of God, the filling out of God, the actualization of God through our acts, and more importantly, through our perceptions and through our um, the 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 um, marrying or um, uh, what, what, what word would I say there? Like the the flowing together, the imbuing of the perception with the imagination. The imagination coming into, like water, mixing with water, imagination and perception. And this opening out is part of the divine drawing down, it's part of the healing, the completion, the actualization of God. Do you understand? It's part, we could say, the healing of the world, tikkun olam, is, is actually the healing of God. If we use that language. But again, I want to, want to put this in, in this more radical view. There's, there's, there's a lot of pieces to this. I, I, I appreciate that. It might be difficult to follow all the threads and how they fit together. But coming back to something I said earlier, when I see things this way, then the whole practice with images and imaginal practice and my whole practice, my whole life even, can be seen for God. It's for, it's for the sake of God, not for the sake of, of myself. Because this um, expansion of the perception is part of the drawing down of the divine. And it's also part of the tantric seeing. So it's for the sake of this, if you like, the primordial wisdom, or if you like, the tantric deities, the deities that are perceived in that way, the divinities. But there's something, as I said, radical in the shift. I'm seeing all this, I'm conceiving of it, I'm sensing it as for God's sake, not for the sake of self, my journey, etc. And when I, when one begins to open to this kind of way of, of uh, conceiving, if, if it attracts one, if one is attracted by it, 
one also then begins to realize that with regard to the demand of imaginal figures or the sense of the demands they make on us, that um, we could say that the God or the gods or how we're going to put it, they're always going to be bigger than me because they're infinite and they're bigger than my life's possibilities. So there's a kind of infinitude here. Again, I talked in other talks and other retreats about this pothos, this aspect of eros, this kind of infinite longing. There's always more. There's always something on the horizon or beyond the horizon that one is moving towards. So this way of conceiving in relation to imaginal figures um, also incorporates that or opens to that sense So I might feel this or that demand from images, and I realize I cannot possibly manifest all this in my life. It's too many. uh, God is always bigger. The gods are always bigger because they're infinite than my life and its possibilities. And that's good. Because in a way, what it also means is that there is no end to soul-making. There's no end to this um, eros and psyche opening each other and deepening each other. So the imaginal sense expands, the sense of the divine expands, and there's more love and more, and that love, that eros, expands the psyche further and the logos with it. it. And that, that process doesn't end, this expansion and penetrating deeper and opening and growth, insemination and fertilization of eros, psyche and logos. There's no end to that, no end to soul-making, I mentioned the other day. So that if with an imaginal figure, or an angel, or daemon, or however we're going to talk about it, or with the sense of God, or gods, or whatever words we use, we're entertaining this sense of telos, this sense of the god, or the angel, the daemon, drawing me towards something there, um, the, uh, as Corbin talks about the angel out ahead but it's open ended that angel is always out ahead I never really real, I never really um, uh, if you like merge with it or, or finish it it, it's, uh, it always is, is out ahead I remember when I was <clears throat> very young and, and learning to swim in, in the sea in Italy um, and my father would stand uh, I don't know, five yards away and, and face me and, and say, come swim towards me. And, uh, and I would start paddling as best I could. And, and I was sure he was moving backwards, <laughs> imperceptibly stepping backwards so to get me to keep swimming. And I would protest that, oh, you're moving backwards. And he'd say, no, 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 I'm not. <laughs> I think he was. Um, but that's the angel out ahead. It's not a static figure that we at some point reach. There's this open-endedness to the telos. There's a direction, there's a drawing towards, a beckoning towards, a, a glimpse of something we're moving towards, the telos, this end, this Greek for end or goal. But it's open-ended. The soul-making never ends because the psyche, the image, keeps expanding, getting deeper, getting richer, getting broader. And the eros, the movement towards that, uh, gets, you know, grows with that. And this telos, this mean, is, is 
telos is part of where we're headed, or the sense of goal or end there, is part of the meaningfulness in all this. Part of the meaningfulness. Nietzsche, I think, is in Twilight of the Idols, uh, says, or writes at one point, if we possess our why in life, we can put up with almost any how. If we possess our why in life, we can put up with almost any how. So no matter how difficult or challenging something is for us in our life, some whatever it is in any, in any realm of, of the being, if we have a why, if we possess our why in life, as he says, if our why is, um, in this context, if our why is serving something greater, if our why, in Corbin's words, is the individuation of the angel. If this path and this practice and my life is for God and not myself, then that's a big why. It's a big uh, part of the telos and the meaningfulness. And then all kinds of things are possible. We can put up with almost any how, he says, Nietzsche. come back to that, what I threw out earlier in the earlier talk, what does healing mean then? When, 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 when we open up the framework this way, this kind of way, and I, I realize, I hope this makes sense, I realize it's quite maybe um, difficult to understand, especially if you're new to all this and talking about emptiness and things. But what then, if, if we open up this kind of conceptual frame as a loose conceptual frame, not a belief, not a rigidity, but a loose conceptual framework to be entertained. What then does healing mean? Who's getting healed here? Is it me? Is it the angel? Is it the soul? Is it God? Is it the healing of perception and cosmology? Healing them from being conceived of as individual and um, inflexible healing them by, by allowing a flexibility into perception, an opening of, of perception, a flexibility in, into cosmology, an opening of that, rather than this rigid narrowness of this is true, this what I perceive is true, this one, not that one, not anything else. Are the, who is getting healed here? What does healing mean? Me, the angel, soul, God, perception, cosmology, all of those, are they even separate? Are they even separate? Just to finish, so we can feel in relation to demands and the demands that we sometimes sense or feel from an imaginal figure, from an angel, daemon, um, we can feel a kind of individual demand particular to that daemon, if you like, or this or that. It's quite, it's quite uh, unique. But in a way, coming out of all this, we could also um, highlight or draw attention to um, three more general demands that come out of uh, sort of demands that come out of imaginal practice. They're connected. They're not really separate. But let's just highlight them. Um, now, one is actually just the demand to open the psyche to the imaginal realm, to open the consciousness to that realm, the realm of the imaginal, and to value it. 
the more we practice with images, the more we um, sense that in a way there's that kind of, uh, I'm using the word loosening that demand to open the consciousness to that realm and to value it. And wrapped up in that is um, a, again, loosely using that word, a demand to open up the consciousness and the sense of value beyond a sort of narrow singularity of view of conceptual framework of logos. Through practicing with the imaginal and, and, and in the kind of ways that we've been talking about, there's a, there's, there's a kind of demand, there's a kind of invitation to um, open up beyond a narrow rigidity of view. Any view, but actually especially the kind of um, dominant cultural view nowadays, which is a sort of simplistic um, materialism, a flattening of everything. Into Everything is just matter. Consciousness emerges as an epiphenomenon of matter. If you leave matter alone long enough, it will eventually form primeval swamp soups, and out of that life will come, and out of that life consciousness will come, etc., there's nothing but materialism. There's, sorry, there's nothing but matter. Everything can be reduced to the movements of matter and space and time. And that's what neurology is, if you like, as a, as an, or neuroscience, as an attempt to explain everything about our human existence. And this sort of assumption there that everything can be explained in purely neuro, neurological terms, neuroscientific terms, as, as just the movement of matter. We can just find the right neural networks and what gets fired and what, that will explain everything. Everything can be reduced to that and through that to just matter. I'll, I'll say more about this tomorrow. I mean, it's very potent as a view and all kinds of wonderful things have come out of that. But A, it's limited and it's limiting. But Secondly, for now, it's, it's, a, it's a singularity of view, and it's that singularity of view, I've talked about this on other retreats, that's problematic. The singularity of conceptual framework. Something uh, problematic there. So again, drawing on the Kabbalistic tradition where many of the streams, not all of them, but many of the streams, um, point to the infinite the interpretable nature. There's an infinite interpretability to teachings and sacred texts. They don't mean one thing. They're infinitely interpretable, as we've said a few times. But also the world and everything in the world is, if you like, infinitely interpretable. There's a, a, a stretching. Uh, rather than just a singularity of conceptual framework and perception, there's an opening um, to different possibilities of conceptual frameworks, uh, not regarding any of them as just the truth. And with that, the opening of perception, and the range of perception, the malleability of perception, the availability of different uh, ways of perceiving. So the Zen teacher Joan Halifax actually wrote a book on shamanism uh, many years ago, and she um, explained that in shamanistic rituals, um, I'm actually quoting a guy called Robert Evans now. 
writing about uh, Joan Halifax, what she wrote. In shamanistic rituals, the neophyte, neophyte means novice, in shamanistic rituals, the neophyte becomes a soft man being. That's the, a soft man being, a kind of androgyne somewhere, not male, not female, whose essential mission is to be an intermediary between the cosmological planes of earth and sky. Can you see how that parallels what we're talking about? Essential mission to be an intermediary between the cosmological planes of earth and sky. It is said that the effort to incorporate the paradox here between those cosmological planes of earth and sky involves the shaman in the constant practice of transformation, as if moving from one point of view to another provides the experimental ground of understanding, of wisdom of true perspectives. So that's what I want to highlight for now. Moving from one point of view to another, from one way of looking, from one conceptual framework, one perception, as if moving from one point of view to another provides the experimental, meaning the practice, the practical ground of understanding, of wisdom of true perspective. So that's, in a way, that's part of the, if you like, the demand more generally. It's one of the demands or invitations of imaginal practice more generally. And a second and very related, not separate from that, is is the, the invitation, the demand to open to the multiplicity of images and mythoi and fantasy, fantasies. Rather than being locked into one, how easily as human beings, without even realizing it, we're just buying into one fantasy or one image or one myth and not seeing, oh, that's, I don't have to be locked into. And, and that one, being locked into it and taking it literally, um, cr- creates problems, all kinds of problems. There's no freedom there. So in um, classical mythology, Orpheus was actually torn to pieces by the Minads, who were um, sort of wild disciples of, of Dionysus. Orpheus was torn to pieces by the Minads for his soul worship of Apollo. In other words, because he just worshipped one god, one archetype, if you like, one, one uh, image, uh, they tore him to pieces. They, they, and you can see the fragmenting, they're tearing uh, apart. Or Jung was fond of saying the gods have become diseases. When we don't open to the range and the multiplicity of gods or archetypes or myths or fantasies or images, when it's um, either in terms of the self or in terms of awakening or anything else, that they that limits, and particularly in regard to the self, that that will the gods that we have neglected, if you like, the archetypes that we have neglected to honor, to recognize, to um, give place to, will manifest as, as some kind of psychological disease or, or organic disease, sometimes, uh, Jung was saying. Maybe it's not just self and humans, maybe traditions also can have that um, shrinking of archetypal range within them, shrinking of the sense of what is divine, and then how that limits and causes problems. I've talked about that elsewhere. So the multipli- opening to the multiplicity of image, that's also one of the, if you like, general demands or invitations uh, of, of imaginal practice.
And then thirdly, can, again, connected, and, and I have mentioned this one before as well, is just the, the invitation or the encouragement, demand that comes out of, out of imaginal practice to begin to realize, to recognize, to acknowledge that image, fantasy, mythos saturate life. Already, our life is saturated by image, fantasy, mythos. Wherever there's love, wherever there's meaningfulness, wherever there's um, that richness and sense of soulfulness, there there is image, fantasy, mythos. It saturates life. And we could go further and, and say that not realizing that is a kind of ignorance. If I don't realize the, the presence already of image, fantasy, and mythos in my life, there's a kind of ignorance there. And then when I start to realize, oh, that's actually part of how I see the Dharma and how I relate to the Dharma and awakening, etc. Then maybe my whole conception of what ignorance is and awakening, because awakening as the end of ignorance, I, that needs to uh, be broadened to include this realization. That image, fantasy, mythos, saturate life, saturate everything, including my idea of the Dharma, my idea of myself, of awakening. Again, I've talked about that elsewhere. I don't want to elaborate too much right now. But that gives uh, this realization, it's as if it puts, uh, it, it gives a different ground to our being. We realize that actually, in a way, we're grounded in imagination. We're grounded in mythos in some way. Our whole life has a different ground when we realize this, or we, we come to feel it, have a different ground, very different, and the Dharma has a different ground when we realize that. So all these, these, these are, um, if you like, as a more general demands or invitations that come through imaginal practice. Okay, let's, let's stop there for now.